Morning, everybody. Happy Friday, April 12, 2019. It's Coachella weekend, and uh, Jay Rodriguez and Michaela are on their way to Coachella, as is just about everybody else in Channel Q. But uh, Jason and I are here holding the fort down at the radio station, and we've got a, a great show lined up today. First, we're going to chat with the former California Democratic Party chairman, Eric Bauman, openly gay guy and a longtime friend of mine, and look forward to that conversation about what's going on with all the Democratic hopefuls. And then uh, he'll be followed by Mary Lucy. Mary is one of the surviving members of ACT UP Los Angeles, and she'll be calling in from her home up in Central California to talk about the glory days of what it was like to be a lesbian, a woman, an AIDS activist in the midst of an epidemic during the 1980s. And then finally, at the end of the show, I promised you all we were going to have Dr. Michael Gottlieb on, one of the co-discoverers of the HIV virus. Michael had to postpone next week. He'll be here next week. But our legal beagle, Steve Meister, is going to call in from the uh, county courthouse. He wants to talk about what's going on with Michael Avenatti and Jesse Smollett and, of course, the college campus controversy. So... A full day of a whole lot of sidebar discussions, but let's start out because he's here in studio with me already now, and welcome the former California Democratic Party Chairman, Eric Bauman. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me. Um, it seems like an early hour of the morning to be on the radio. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. It's, no, it's not so early. It's 10 o'clock. It's 1 o'clock on the way <laughs> on the East Coast. Welcome so much. You and I have been friends a long time. What, 30 years or so? 30 years. Oh, my God. We both had dark hair. We, we did. At least we still have hair. We both. <laughs> We'll still That's have true. air. A little, a little salt and peppery now, but we still have air. I'm telling you. What do you think's going on with Pete, Mayor Pete Buttigieg? Did I say that right? It, well, since nobody could say it, that's the reason why yeah. he's known as Mayor Pete. <laughs> and I think anytime you're running for president and you get a moniker like that, you know, it automatically gives you an extra four points in the yeah, polls. Exactly. Look, the the guy, you know, he's polling he, third in New Hampshire. He 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 and Beto O'Rourke are the two kind of unexpected breakout <laughs> candidates um, because they're both very energetic. They're both very telegenic. Um, uh, Pete's story is different. The fact that he's running as an overt, openly gay man, no hesitation about it. The fact that he's willing to talk about his faith mm-hmm. and not just in the context of his recent uh, skirmish with Vice President Pence, uh, which is which is interesting in and of itself, but the fact that you know, a, 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 as 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 an observant Jewish man, I know what it's like to be a gay man, to be a Democrat, and to talk about religion, right. and for it to not necessarily be very well received by many in our party, especially when you have to contend with the parts of the Bible that are not particularly um, friendly to those of us who are gay. All of that said. Um, Pete's a brilliant guy, and he presents super well. And I loved hearing his partner saying he'd be the first man to get to pick out the White House China. <laughs> I thought that was like a great, you know, such a great line. Uh, that is hysterical. Yeah. yeah, interesting. He's taking on the vice president. That's his former governor, right? That's his former governor, and <laughs> it, it, it's interesting that it was the wife who became defensive about it. Right now, the wife teaches in a school where she had to sign a contract where, amongst other things, she wouldn't be gay, she wouldn't be trans, she wouldn't have extramarital affairs, she wouldn't teach about homosexuality. And um, I, I, I think he took him on in a very respectable way, and he did it, and he said, as one man of faith, my faith, my Christianity doesn't look like yours right and it's continued the thing is they won't let the story go away because um the pences are really thin-skinned about this and they keep raising it again yesterday the vice president was talking about it and of course every time they do that it elevates mayor pete in stature because here here he is a first time relatively unknown candidate running for president and the vice president's arguing with him wow you know, so that really elevates him, and it gets him, it gets him national media time. That's about something other than his campaign, and it's something that because he presents so well, which could really be a negative, but he's so respectful about it. And when he talks about his faith, he does it as somebody who's very well informed. Yeah. Who do you think the front runners are right now? Biden and Sanders. Well, Biden and Sanders for sure. 
um, most people, not by the numbers, but but by the by the map, put um, Kamala Harris next. Um, why, why is why, why is that? Well, because because she has she has such a draw amongst African Americans. Oh, the South Carolina primary. Correct, South Carolina primary, Georgia, a bunch of other places. Um, in addition to the fact that she has theoretically, at least, an edge in California, though Biden certainly is coming in first in in polls in, in California right oh, now. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, huh. yeah, but she's certainly got the edge here because she's been elected twice statewide in California. Right. And I know that that her opponents like to say, well, she had a real struggle to get elected um, attorney general. Well, she was the she was the district attorney from San Francisco. And there were issues about her not supporting the death penalty. And so, of course, it was a difficult fight, especially when she was running against a district attorney from L.A. County who was a, an allegedly moderate Republican who didn't support three strikes and who was not a big death penalty fan. But in the end, L.A. County gave her that first election by 16 or 18 points. Mm-hmm. Looking at the electoral map, you know, for the electoral college, yeah, projecting into 2020, you think it's still going to be the Midwest that's critical? Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin? Look, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, pr- probably Florida, those are the states to watch. They continue to be the states to watch. And, and, and for example, in the midterms, we Democrats did extremely well in nearly all of those states. Right. But yet... When you look at the special the the election that was just held to fill um, a Supreme Court seat in Wisconsin, they actually do them with true elections, uh, not the sort of rubber stamp election we do in California. Um, Democrats should have won that seat. It was a seat held by a uh, previously by a uh, liberal uh, justice. We did not, and. Republican won it, and whether that's a sign of the fact that Republicans are now fired up and Trump's gotten them fired up, or whether it's a sign that our candidate wasn't that good, or just that people are starting to get voter fatigue, um, you know, one thing is you cannot escape, you cannot turn on a television, you cannot turn on the radio news, you can't open any blog without it being filled with political stories. Right, very, very true. You have seen the internecine wars that occur within the party firsthand and up close, unfortunately. I worry about the same thing on the national level playing out between the Bernie Sanders supporters and other people. And How do you think we – I mean, because ultimately we all want the same thing. We want to defeat Donald Trump. So part of, part of what – part of what – Bernie has, to a great extent, I hate to I hate to use the phrase "cult of personality" because people take that the wrong way. I don't mean he's cultish, but the people who are devoted to him are devoted to him. Twenty percent of Democratic voters are committed to him, and they're not sliding. They're not moving. They're not moving away from him. And many of them weren't necessarily Democrats beforehand. They may have been independents. They may have been Green Party, um, but. He's going to hold that base. So then it becomes a question, what happens with the rest of the field? How does it split up? And how many of them actually stay in past the first round of primaries? Front-loading and adding California to the mix really changes the game. We'll talk more about that when we come back after commercial break. We're talking to former California Democratic Party Chairman Eric Bauman, and you're listening to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I played that for you, Eric Bauman. (laughs) Happy days are here again. May we hear it. And where does that song come from? Oh, I'm about to learn something. I don't know. From FDR's first re-election. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. 
And it's uh, become the Democratic Party's sort of theme song when we win a big night, right? Yeah, but it was it was he, he was trying to say that you know we had gotten out of the depression and and we were moving forward in the world, and that was his theme song. Wow. Now you were a registered nurse before you became. Yeah, I, st- an I, I still am one. I, right, right. I mean, I just don't practice. How did you get the political bug? I always worked in these inner, inner city urban hospitals where you know the majority of our patients were poor uh, on Medi-Cal or indigent, and um, I could see the system wasn't working right in the late 70s and the early 80s, and major changes were coming to the healthcare system, none of which were going to benefit hospitals like the places I worked at. And I worked at places like Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center in L.A. County and Daniel Freeman Memorial Hospital in uh, Inglewood. Um, and so I started trying to figure out how does one get involved to try to change the system, and I got involved with uh, a couple of the nursing organizations through their political action arms and realized it was nonsense, and you had to be in the mainstream world. And so that's how I got in. I never really wanted to do LGBT politics because, as you well know, once you do it, you know you get put in that box. It's very hard to break back out of it. But it was Clinton that really pushed me into that arena, um, especially after the difficult stuff started happening. And he, I always thought he was pivotal, pivotal and important to our community. And I got elected president of Stonewall in 1994. Um, and... In, in 1995, we started holding meetings in Washington and around the country trying to figure out how we were going to not have the community walk on him in his reelection. You know, we'd already been through Don't Ask, Don't Tell and uh, right. numerous other things. Um, and despite Bob Hattoy dancing on tables, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't quite uh, right. And then in, two, in, in 1996, in, in the spring of 1996, and this, I, I'd love to share this story, we had 100 LGBT um, leaders from across the country, Democratic leaders, activists, and we were in this giant meeting room around a big rectangular table and the meeting was being led by that section of the meeting was being led by Ann Lewis Barney Frank's sister Ann Lewis was then the uh, either the White House Deputy Communications Director or the DNC's Deputy Communications Director and we're going around the room and everybody's sort of introducing themselves to each other and how they got into gay politics and whatnot and you know even though there was no such thing as gay marriage or anything else people were talking about you know recognition of relationships and protect job protections whatever and we got about a third or or 40 percent of the way around the room and this one woman a lesbian from missouri said i am amazed when i listen to you all talk you all are talking about marriages and reg- relationship recognition and anti-discrimination law. She says, when my partner and I go to bed at night and go into our bedroom and close the door, we worry about the cops busting in and kicking the door open and arresting us for felony sodomy. And the room went dead silent because, you know, even by that point, for those of us who are from the big cities and from the coasts, I mean, we were long past that. Right, right. And it was a very, very stunning development. And we knew uh, part of the impetus for doing this is we knew Don't Ask, Don't Tell was going to be, I mean, um, uh, uh, um, marriage was going to be coming up. And DOMA, I think DOMA, that, yes, DOMA yeah. was going to be coming up. It, it hadn't yet been announced. But if, if you remember, it was on, I believe it was April 1st. Of 1996, on the front page of the New York Times, Newt Gingrich said, I'm going to make homosexual marriage the number one issue of this campaign and hang it around Bill Clinton's neck so that he fails. Mm hmm. Yeah. We've been used as a political football over the decades, over the decades. Man. Very true. I mean, the epidemic, especially. Well, now, you were a nurse. Were you a nurse during the epidemic? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. And, well, I'll tell you, you know, my partner and I just had our 36th anniversary. Um, February 27th and um, uh, March 27th I'm sorry when I say February and we met in 1982 think about this for a second with the life we both were leading at that moment Mm -hmm. 
that moment was perfect that we saved each other. Yeah, exactly. It actually was a theme when we got married of Michael's um, vows. He talked about that issue. Um, I remember long before we'd even heard of GRID, the predecessor of AIDS in, in nomenclature, um, we had an 18-year-old boy on a ventilator in my intensive care unit that I worked in um, with pneumonia that nobody could figure out. And there were huge fights between his boyfriend and um, his parents. His parents didn't want him to visit. And um, um, he ended up dying and died undiagnosed until the pathology report came back. And he had this pneumocystis carinii pneumonia that nobody had ever heard of except in cancer patients who were immunosuppressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, and it's probably one. Since, such memories of that. You know, the big blue wave that just happened with us taking back the House, it seems like a lot of women were elected to the U.S. Congress and, and all over the country. Mm-hmm. But there seems to be now, uh, we, we become this party of different parts that seem to not be completely meshing together. Kind of the old union workers and, you know, the Joe Biden wing of the party. And now we've got these new activists coming in who have a very strong point of view, a lot of them younger and maybe not knowing the history of the party. How do we find peace? So, so I, I start with the following premise. This is not new in the Democratic Party. And, and I'll, I'll start by saying that when you have a big tent party that runs from near-anarchist, neo-socialist, socialist, all the way to right-of-center gun owners, some who are anti-choice, some who are anti-gay, and, and they run the spectrum, and Democrats do run that spectrum, even right here in California, um, you always are at risk of this. But what everybody forgets <laughs> is when, uh, when Howard Dean ran for president, though he didn't become the nominee, he inspired a version of almost exactly the same thing that Bernie Sanders has. And, and his... The Deniacs, as they used to call them, mm-hmm. made the same moves to take over the party. Um, they uh, f- fought to break in. And what happened was, after a year or two, and, and, and by the way, the same forces that, you know, of resistance were resisting, right? Because n- there's always an unstoppable wall of change. Um, uh, f- from people, especially people in leadership and people with power. Um, and within two years, though, they really had started to fit in. They had really started to engage. Um, we're a little bit more hyperpolarized right now, and there are different lines, um, and even within subgroups of people, you know, if you if you look at the the so-called progressive wing of the party. There are some people for whom the number one and primary issue is climate change. There are some people who it's um, gender equality. For some people, it's um, people of color issues. And um, that really has an impact. And and what, what you have to do is you just have to try to treat everybody fairly and treat everybody um, uh, equally and make sure that people have a say and that they're, even if you disagree with them, that you're respectful about it. And that's one of the things that became the problem with the 2016 is that both sides did not treat each other respectfully uh, during and after that process. Um, there was a lot of ugliness on all sides, and each side likes to say it was all the other side, but it wasn't. It was both sides. Right. Um, uh, you know, I, it, it's a difficult problem. It is going to be further exacerbated, maybe, as we look at how the um, the, the stratification of candidates running for president on Democratic ticket, because you really do, you know, you have Joe Biden and and Amy Klobuchar, who represent a very traditionalistic, very um, moderate kind of politics, um, and then you have you know um, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, for example, who are on the other side, right? And then you have people like Beto that, on superficially, you'd say, "Wow, you know, is this." 
progressive breakout, and then you listen to his politics, it's actually pretty moderate. He's the same with Mayor Pete. Mayor Correct. Pete's actually pretty moderate, right. but for the fact that he's gay. So he right. gets this extra emblem. That makes him immoderate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what was Will Rogers' famous quote? I don't belong to any organized political party. I I'm a Democrat. Democrat yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's exactly right. But then looking at the other side of the aisle, the Republicans seem to be in complete lockstep right now. Like They have really gathered around Donald Trump, 90% supportive, and I'm just curious about that. I don't know we have to go to, can you stick around for another eight minutes? We're going to go to a commercial break, but when we come back, we'll talk about what the other party's been up to. You're listening to Sidebar with John Duran. We're talking to Eric Bauman, a former California chairman of the Democratic Party, here on the new Channel Q. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast man i you could have played that whole thing jason i just love listening to barack speak man it feels so good eric you and i have been doing politics for all over 30 years and we've been through conservative administrations we've been through ronald reagan we've been through the bushes you know i even remember bits and pieces of nixon but what we're going through right now is unparalleled i mean and it seems like the republicans have just gathered around trumpism and completely eradicated thrown off all of their values let me remind you of something Remember, Jerry Falwell led what? The moral majority. And their framing of everything was that they were the moral people and and everybody else, liberals, gays, women, we were all immoral. Those same moralizers, those same um, evangelicals, today excuse the things that Donald Trump says and does. You know, this week they've been talking about um, there had been these secret plans to try to, they were going to take immigrants that were detained and deposit them on the streets of places like San Francisco, New York, LA, sanctuary cities, cities, as punishment. And then it was announced that they had stopped it and all this. This morning, Trump tweeted, we're, we're planning, we're preparing, we may be doing this. Okay, this is a guy who, uh, this is a guy who proudly wants to tear babies away from their mothers and put the kids in cages. And the evangelicals stand for that. Uh, these are these people who speak of immigrants in the way they do. Don't know Leviticus where it says, and you, sh- you know, you shall treat the stranger amongst you as if he were one of your own, for ye you yourself were a stranger in Mitzrayim in, in Egypt. And uh, it, it, it baffles me that all of their Christian values, all of their morality, is just totally ignore, ignored. It's paused. And Mike Pence, who is at the top of the moralizers, goes along and defends this guy and stands up and says he's the greatest president the United States has ever had. It's so hard to stomach and to watch. And the rule of law. I mean, Republicans historically have been all about the rule of law, law enforcement, supporting the FBI, supporting the Department of Justice. Everything's been turned on its head, all to protect Donald Trump. 
it, it's so demoralizing to watch because I, I really do believe in a two-party system. I think you have to have two strong parties. But when one party is playing by the rules, in my opinion, and the other party is about usurping and completely ignoring the rules just to retain power, it doesn't look much like a democracy anymore. No, it's true. Very, very sad. What do you think uh, our chances are of beating Donald Trump, beating president? Well, assuming assuming a fair election. Ah, assuming a fair election. There you go. Right, no, assuming Without a fair election. Without suppressing the vote, right? And um, places like Michigan clearly swung Democratic. Wisconsin clearly swung Democratic. Um, Pennsylvania, same. The, the special elections, there have been, I think, four special elections since the first of the year. Democrats have won every one of them where where it was a, a pickup opportunity. Um, so I don't think the voters are yet done. The voters, at the end of the day, the average voter cares about health care. The average voter does care about the economy. The average voter does not believe that um, the streets uh, are, are filled with millions of quote-unquote illegal aliens who are flooding it and stealing our jobs. That's not what the average American thinks. And in point of fact, in two major polls this week, they showed 70% of Americans believe that immigrants bring value to the United States of America. And I got to tell you, I knew your mother. I know, I know my, you know where my grandparents came from. There's not very many of us other than those who are Native American who didn't get here as immigrants. Right. And I got news for you. All those Jews and Italians and Irish who came in at the turn of the last century, they didn't necessarily come in with papers. Right. They were the poor. <laughs> they were the poor and the, the outcasts from many places. Correct. Right. That's, that's exactly right. And so, I mean, it's, it, it's very disheartening. Um, I, I put CNN on, and like Michael wants me to turn, just turn it off. He doesn't want to hear any of it anymore. <laughs> you know, he's so fed up with it. And, you know, I, I read this stuff all day long, trying to stay on top of uh, what's going on so that I can actually answer questions like this. And I, I must tell you, I, I'm not an easily um, disheartened person. Um, and I am pretty disheartened. Yeah, I know. I have a belief, though, that not only can we take the White House, but the U.S. Senate, possibly in 2020. I mean, the numbers, looking at the numbers and the races that are up in 2020, I think that's realistic. Well, the, the Senate is <coughs> is possible. I mean, it, it requires a lot of things to go right. Um but the Republicans are defending 20-some-odd seats, so, you know, it's the reverse of, of last year's. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's the reverse of last year's um, election where we we were in the, that unenviable position, and the seats we were defending, many of them were seats Trump had won. Um, we'll see. Certainly, the Democratic Party is doing the work now. You know, this week, the Democratic National Party unveiled... Um, this this extraordinary war room that um, uh, that will enable real time response to um, all the stuff that's going on. They put some videos, some short videos, up yesterday on Twitter, and you know you have to watch this stuff. It's really good and professional stuff. The question is: Is anybody listening? Mm. Yeah. No, no. And the question is whether people are paying attention yet. This is too early, but the insiders are. The insiders yeah, are well, definitely. The insiders are. But the other thing is that you have a lot of people who are just set in. You know, when Donald Trump once said he could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and his you know, they, be they, loyal. They, yeah. you know, they, they'd give him they'd give him a parade. Um, they still would. Yeah. You know, they cheer. The terrible things that he says. She was belligerence, I think. Yeah. I think more is going to be revealed, even in a redacted Mueller report. That will... Uh, I'd like to see the unredacted Mueller report. We all we all would. Well, I guess we're going to see something next week. <laughs> we all would. We'll, 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 we'll see what's in it. Yeah. It'll be interesting. And I'm watching the Attorney General, William Barr, really squirm. I, I, I can tell the discomfort. 
because he has become a Trumper too. And that's not his history. That's not his career. And he finds himself at the same spot. So like everything Trump touches dies is the title of that book. And I, I believe it, including William Barr. Be interesting to see. A, a, a lot of people have had their reputations um, destroyed in short periods of time, and the, the man's un, inability to accept blame for or responsibility for anything. Yeah, very, very true. Uh, I, I mean, how do people commit to somebody where you know you watch his pattern and you can see? Yeah, you can see what's going on. We have been talking with former California Democratic Party Chairman Eric Bauman. Eric, I want to thank you for coming by today. You are a fountain of information, and I knew you'd have so much to share with our listeners. So thanks for coming by. We can come back again? Sure, absolutely. All right, Gabe, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Mary Lucy about the glory days of ACT UP Los Angeles when she was an activist. Thank you for listening to all of us here at Channel Q. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – Price and coverage match limited by state law. Glory from Rent, leading us into our next guest. She's one of my heroes. If those of you uh, listen regularly, you know how I often speak about how gay men are eternally indebted to lesbian women and the uh, other women who helped lead the fight against HIV and AIDS when so many of our gay brothers were sick and fallen. And it was women who took charge and women who took the lead. And we are forever indebted to them. And one of those incredible women is with us this morning she's calling down from uh, central california uh she's a very active i'm going to find out in a second if not a founder of act up los angeles during its heyday and that's the incredible activist mary lucy welcome to the show mary Hi, John. Thanks for having me today. Honey, it's so good. I mean, I know you and I are friends on Facebook, so I get to keep up with you every now and then, but I, I really mean what I say. You are truly one of my sheroes for all of the work that you guys all did in the 1980s, and we were really, really taking it on the chin. Yeah, we really were, and it and it took a, a it should have been a national, you know, alert immediately, but unfortunately, due to, you know, some of the bigotry in this country, it was ignored for so long that the the scars and the devastation and the deaths were just uh, unbelievable. Yeah. I, I remember, I think ACT UP sort of got generated out of the March on Washington, October 11th, 1987. At least at least that's yeah. kind of the linkage, is right after that march, a lot of the ACT UP chapters got started, Larry Kramer in New York, and then of course here in Los Angeles, uh, I, I always remember you and I remember Mark Christopoulos, Robbie Roberts and others, Wade, uh, so many names now that I, I'm slowly starting to fade in my memory because it's been so long, but how did you first engage with uh, ACT UP LA. Well, let me just back up a hair. You're absolutely right. It it was born out of the March on Washington by Mark Kostopoulos. And, and like so many other cities, people went back to their cities, Shreveport, you know, some of the smaller ones, Santa Barbara, came back and started mobilizing and organizing. You know, so... Um, I and my wife, uh, well, Nancy had known about ACT UP for quite a while. Um, I was diagnosed in uh, 90, and I happened to be six months pregnant. Um, and uh, that's how I found out that I was infected. Um, so I met my lover, Nancy, now my wife, and um and we went for aid services first, and I was offered a job application, but not a client application. Hmm. And it clearly, you know, I was sick. Um, you know, I I had gotten Wasting's disease, and and um, I'd had a couple OIs by then, opportunistic infections, and so um, we were somewhat startled and taken back that. 
I would only be there for a job and not as a client. And I think that that's part of what mobilized uh, us to to investigate ACT UP a little bit more. Fortunately, um, they were first designing the Women's Caucus. And um, so our timing was absolutely perfect. We were there to be, you know, part of it from the first meeting um, and, and on. The ACT UP was, you know, for a woman to come into, you know, a room 95% men and be embraced on the level that we were was was heartbreaking and, and empowering all at the same time. To know that I didn't have to live in the closet, I didn't, we didn't have to hide my status, and and we could support each other openly, you know. And plus we, you know, we were fighting for our lives, literally. So there's a different urgency. There's your body goes through different things when you're faced with a, truly a war. How many? So how it many, was perfect. How many friends do you think you you buried or lost during during that period of time? Well, I never have been a counter, right? I just, you know, I think I respond more to the pain and the loss than actually keeping track. You know, I would say in ACT UP, we did a memorial march at least once a month. So just for that small group, meaning a couple hundred of us, you know, just in this chapter, it was... And, and there were many, many more. And there were times when we would do a memorial march for, you know, an activist or, you know, a person who had attempted to make change. And many times it was for one or two people. You know, uh, people don't, I mean, you do, and, and others who were fortunate enough to be able to survive the epidemic realize just how horrifying it really, really was. It was, um, the denial was, was, I guess, some of the most horrifying thing. And it's hard to put your finger on, you know, social issues and have your, you know, life, you know, being changed or, or losing it because you can't get society to, to respond. And that's where the homophobia truly was extremely deadly. We're talking to Mary Lucy from uh, the glory days of ACT UP Los Angeles. We need to take a short commercial break, Mary. We'll be back in a few and continue our discussion. Thank you for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Empty chairs and empty tables from Les Mis, one of the songs associated with the AIDS epidemic. We're talking to Mary Lucy uh, of Act Up Los Angeles. And Mary, thanks again for joining us this morning on the show. You know, one of my great loves from Act Up LA was Connie Norman. She and I were very close, and I still think about her even to this day uh, and how much I I miss her. Are there any stories or or tales or events that you recall from, from your days that you still remember just as clearly as if if it was yesterday? Well, there are a lot. And Connie was a, as we all know, was a special, special type of person. You know, when you met Connie, you immediately felt that you had known her forever. And uh, when I came into ACT UP, you know, I was the first positive woman to come in. And... um, you know, that was willing to openly say they were positive. I don't know if there were other women there as well. And Connie, she, she grabbed my hand and she, she said, sweetheart, we are going to be girlfriends. 
and you will be the first girlfriend I've ever had that was born a girl. You know, and Connie and I became really very, very close. Um, we had a lot of common interests. Um, she had a different background. She had come from Texas. I had come from Washington State. and We'd both been in the cities for quite some time, you know, being young and, and uh, growing out of our environments. Um, so, but Connie and I enjoyed doing clinic defense on the weekends. And I would drive over to her house about 3.30 in the morning, and we would stake out one of the fundies, as we called them, the fundamentalists. We would stake out their houses and watch which direction they went in so we would know where the action was. <laughs> Funny. That's amazing. And this would have been and before cell phones, right? So that is kind oh, of... Oh, <laughs> way before cell phones. We had... We had pagers, and we kind of knew where each other were. So, you know, one would see one, and we would, you know, jump in behind. And so, you know, we would we would get the word out. And so, um, you know, the Christian fundamentalists were very, very violent people. And we came from a strict nonviolence. You know, we believed in it. It's in our soul, right? And uh, And these people were just violent. And a lot of times, you know, I would, Nancy was not going to participate. She was like, you know, we have Roe v. Wade, I'll do this, I'll do that, but I'm not going to go out there and get my ass kicked. (laughs) And I think we used it as a way to release some of our aggravation as well, you know. Um, I remember one woman just, you know, one, one guy, he decided, we were in the elevator, the clinic was on the third floor. And I'm pretty sure Connie was standing there and there was a couple other act up folks there. And this guy decided he was going to sucker punch me. And I was so shocked. I, you know, because I'm from nonviolence. Come on now, you know. (laughs) And, um, you know, I was surprised how quickly, you know, I nailed him right back you know and <laughs> i don't mean to laugh at that but i mean i, I kind of glad you and did. i could hear connie's voice in the background kick his ass <laughs> 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 and I, we did i kicked his ass um and uh and so that's something that stands out in my mind you know also too is that my job when connie was doing civil disobedience right and would be arrested my job my was to stand at that door and have a cigarette and a, and a Pepsi waiting for her. <laughs> and, you know, she would come through that door screaming, you know, rip it out of my hand. <laughs> but, you know. I love uh, her so much. When she passed away at a Chris Brownlee hospice, I got to see her the week before she passed. And she secured a deathbed yeah. promise out of me. She said, honey, uh, for our listeners who don't know, Connie was a transgendered woman. Uh, uh, she said, honey, when I pass, just make me one promise. You'll take care of my girls after I'm gone. I said, I promise, Connie, I will. And, yeah, uh, and I've had no. a chance to continue to do that, creating a trans advisory board in West Hollywood and having the trans flags fly over the city 365 days a year. And, of course, all the programming we've been developing in West Hollywood for our trans community. Yeah, she she was amazing, amazing advocate for the transgender communities, the gay community, the lesbian community, all the communities. You know, she always, you know, Something wasn't going to be said without her defending our position or or justifying something. And so I really contribute her 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 taking those risks yeah. for the for the betterment of, of so many of thousands of people. I, t- I tell people back in those days that even though we were in the midst of an epidemic and there were hundreds dying around us constantly, there were two things we never lost. We never lost our sense of humor. We had gallows humor, but we had to laugh in the face of death wherever possible. And we never, at least, uh, you know, some of the gay men that I recall, never lost our identity around that being sexual was not going to be seen as a stigma or something negative and keeping a, a positive uh, a positive portrayal of human sexuality in the midst of plague at the same time was something we were going to guard. Right. 
Yeah. We 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 weren't we weren't going to play the game, you know. Oh, you're positive, so you never can have sex again. Oh no no. And in fact, you know, act up. You know, we we relied on donations, you know, and we would throw these fundraisers, you know. Um, and we were criticized for them too, you know, had lots and lots of condoms, right. That basically they were fun houses and, you know, from room to room, you know, the party was on and, uh, yeah, you know, so we encourage the sex positive attitude. Very much so. You know, Mary, we got to leave it here because we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back again because I love love hearing these stories of the glory days of Act Up LA. I hope you'll come back on the show again in the future. Oh, most definitely. Thanks for doing this. It really does mean a lot. It makes a big difference to so many. So thank you so much. Thank you. We've been chatting with Mary Lucy from Act Up LA Days. Thank you, Mary, for your heroism and being who you are. And thank you all for listening to Channel Q here at Sidebar with John Duran. giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Welcome back, everybody. We're having a great morning today, talking to California Democratic Party Chairman Eric Bauman and uh, Act Up LA's Mary Lucy. And now, my favorite legal beagle is coming on the show, the incredible Steve Meister. Steve, welcome back. Good morning, John. It's great to be with you again. How are you doing? I am doing good. I mean, talk about, I, I looked at the morning paper, and I didn't know which story to talk to you about, because there's so much going on right now out in the legal and political worlds, and it's all very fascinating to me. Oh, I know. We can we can have coffee now, we can have wine later, and we'll still be on the front page. <laughs> I know. Very, very funny. Jussie Smollett. Now, you and I were talking about it a couple of weeks ago, but what do you think happened there with Jussie in Chicago? I think Chicago happened in Chicago, to be honest with you. I I don't know. I I have no explanation for this except that somebody got to somebody. And I'm normally not a corruption conspiracy theory monger. I don't operate that way, and I don't think about things that way. But in this case, I, I don't see what else could have happened because... You have a prosecutor's office where the DA, Kim Fox, was the elected DA, was being leaned on by some prominent Chicagoan who used to work for Michelle Obama saying, hey, Kim, what do you think about, you know, the FBI investigating this? And for reasons I are still unclear to me. And the DA said, oh, I don't have a problem with that. And then it came out that that happened. And then the DA recused herself. And then her office filed charges and then pursued a grand jury indictment. The grand jury returned a true bill. The guy was facing 16 felonies. The prosecutor goes to court unannounced, dismisses the entire case, and then has a press conference that says, there's nothing wrong with our evidence. We're just um, dismissing. (laughs) Well, I mean, I wish it was that easy for all our clients. Steve and I are both criminal defense lawyers, listeners. So, I mean, I wish it was that easy for all our clients. Sure, I'd love to. I'd love to be able to, you know, place a, a, a have have a, a case with airtight evidence and then just have it dismissed just because. But you know, you normally that's that's not the way things are supposed to happen. It's not fair when it doesn't happen for anybody else's client. It's not fair when it happens for one person. The evidence seemed very clearly to warrant this filing, and it's really mystifying to me that this disappeared. And so the only and and the thing is, if the prosecutor had said, "Look, we overstepped." We went too far. We filed things we shouldn't have charged. We're, we're walking this back, and we're going to, you know, and, and it's going to, this is, this is the way it is. That's one thing. But the same prosecutor who went to court and dismissed the whole case <clears throat> next said to everybody, there's nothing wrong with our evidence. I still believe in the prosecution that we brought. It's like, okay, you're going to have to explain that to me, dude, because 
that's not how prosecutions are supposed to work. Yeah, that, that's but the that's part that troubles here. me, is that it, the case wasn't dismissed because there was a deficiency or uh, an insufficiency of the evidence, which would be a prosecutorial judgment. In this case, the prosecutor said, oh, no, we got the evidence. We're just dismissing it, I, yeah. I guess, in the interest of justice uh, under some broad theory. But it, it just it doesn't seem right. I mean, I you know, and, and I've met Jesse Smollett. I, I, you know, only an acquaintance, but I mean, <laughs> it, it just doesn't seem right that when somebody has a celebrity fame or or money or access to people in power that they have a different set of justice applied to them than it would be applied to anybody else it, i think people lose it, it respect right. for the system completely it isn't right it isn't right it doesn't seem right because you're right it is isn't right it's not fair for anyone to get that kind of result when the evidence doesn't seem to warrant it and it doesn't happen for anybody else i mean you know, there's a lot of people. I mean, John, you said it best a few minutes ago. All of our clients would like this result, but they don't earn it. And and that's and the reason is the system has integrity. And when something like this happens, it undermines public confidence, and for a good reason, because there doesn't seem to be any valid explanation for this, other than that it was old-style Chicago politics, and somebody who didn't want this case going forward got their way in spite of the facts, and it's just wrong. Yeah, it doesn't seem right. You know, one of my uh, my friends who's a lawyer uh, is Michael Avenatti, and I'm I'm really pained watching what's happening to him right now. I mean, from what you're reading in the papers, it it sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? It does, it does. And you know, look, everybody's innocent until proven guilty, and we all know that. And it's and it's it's easy to go on air and talk about you know how damned someone is based on the facts and et cetera, et cetera. But what what's what strikes me in Avenatti's case is that the L.A. case, the Santa Ana case, seems to be much more involved with much more sympathetic victims than um, the alleged extortion of Nike back east. And also that the evidence in there, there seems to be an independent voice <coughs> communicating, communicating with the court in Santa Ana that the Santa Ana case is strong. And that independent voice is another lawyer. He's an outside receiver who I think was appointed by the bankruptcy court. And just last week, he made some sort of discreet, barely noticed filing in the case, answering questions the bankruptcy court had about the new Southern California indictment. And the receiver said, yeah, the indictment appears solid. I want you to take uh, control of this, you know, a- the assets of the firm out of Avenatti's hands because he has no employees, he has no assets, he has no means by which to manage these things. Uh, and the receiver is recommending a pretty harsh treatment based on what the receiver's understanding is of the facts and the investigation he's conducted. So it does appear that uh, this prominent attorney is in a load of trouble. Yeah, you know, and I hate, and like you say, everybody's innocent until proven guilty. I get that, but I mean, one of the things I think that lawyers need to be especially careful about is how we manage our clients' money. I I don't do civil work. I don't know about you. I, I just do criminal work. But you yeah. know, civil work when people are entrusting you with their lives and you're getting a judgment, and then to to not at least what I read in the LA Times today, he didn't notify his client he'd received a settlement, uh, even yeah. though he'd, he'd received a settlement on a case something like. 12 or 18 months prior and that's that to me was like oh man that's such a, such a oh, grave yeah. error grave error that that is uh that's the death knell for somebody practicing law if uh you know if the bar decides that that's what happened i mean that's that's that you steal a client's money that's it's not it's not just re- not reporting the settlement the allegation is that he spent the money and on, and on a is, jet, a luxury jet, or on something. a jet, and this and this client, you know, this is why I say there's a sympathetic victim out in Southern California. This client was someone who'd suffered paralysis, I think, you know, allegedly at the hands of sheriffs in a county jail. So, you know, if that's the guy you're going to steal money from, <coughs> and and it, and you can be proven to have done that, you should be kissing your law license goodbye. And you know, a lot of people, no matter what else you've done in your career, would say, "Dude, good riddance. You can't do that." Yeah. What do you, what do you, I'm, Steve, I love picking your brain because I think you're one of the smartest guys I know. But I, what do you think about William Barr, our uh, attorney general, uh, and the way in which he's, he's, it seems to be struggling between his role as the attorney general for the United States of America and the attorney general in the Trump administration? It seems to be producing a lot of squirming on the, in the national spotlight for him. 
Yeah, it's just one cheery topic after another these days. I know, I know. We got to find something Uh, cheerful to talk about, don't we? Heaven. So you know, so you know what I feel. I I think you put it well. Uh, I'm saddened because I don't see Barr as really engaging in much of a struggle. He, he, he seems. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but he seems to have have revealed himself to be such a hyper partisan, and and I'm really concerned about it. I mean, his loose use of incendiary language before Congress, his arrogance in not walking that language back, his, um, uh, his, his acting in lockstep with the president's, with some of the worst and most unfounded things that the president has lobbed out there, uh, and just this red meat conspiracy-mongering nonsense. And, and here's the Attorney General of the United States apparently backing it up, you know, with, with new fervor, each passing day, it is extremely worrisome and irresponsible, and and it's you know it makes me think democracy doesn't take care of itself. It it, it the, the health of our country depends on the contribution of each of us to its you know to, to nurturing and strengthening the core values we of you know with core values we cherish as Americans and the system we've built. It's not going and when it, when people in government aren't doing it, it's up to individual citizens to insist that it be done. Yeah, very, very true. Hey, Steve, I know you've got to leave me at 1140. We need to take a quick commercial break. Can you come back for a snippet right after the commercial break and talk about one more issue? Of course. Thanks, John. All right. Thank you all for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. Welcome back, gang. We're talking to Legal Beagle Steve Meister on the phone about uh, cases in the news. And uh, Steve, I wanted to chat with you a bit about, I don't know if you noticed in the L.A. Times yesterday, there was a story that the U.S. Supreme Court may be revisiting the issue of wedding cakes and uh, marriage equality all over again. Apparently, there's a couple in Oregon. They were fined $135,000 for refusing to make a cake for two lesbian women. And the question is whether the U.S. Supremes will take this one up. And I guess they're going to decide as early as Monday. Because the old, the old wedding cake case in Colorado was limited to just those facts. Kennedy was not willing to, to really take on the larger issues. And I guess the larger issue is whether state anti-discrimination laws are subject to some type of religious exemption. If people have strongly held religious beliefs that they can be exempted from those civil rights laws that protect people from discrimination in public accommodations. Did you see that? Did you see that in the paper? No, but I've been well briefed on it now. <laughs> I kind of laid it all laid it all out for you. I mean, it's a troubling thing because I understand people, you know, having strongly held religious beliefs. I, I get that, and you know, it's the free exercise clause of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and people saying I cannot be compelled to make a wedding cake for a gay couple or a lesbian couple if I don't believe in that. You can't force me. But then historically, uh, I mean, people have used religion repeatedly as a way, well, to, you know, not serve Jews, uh, not serve blacks, uh, to think that women deserve second-class status, and and they've done it all based on interpretation of the scripture uh, according to their own religious beliefs. So, I mean, are the justices potentially opening Pandora's box by looking for a religious exemption to civil rights laws? I'm guessing, yeah. I mean, I think with, well, I think, I don't know that the justices are. I think that the people who are bringing these cases who want the court to take this up um, see an opportunity. Because if a court with Kennedy on it insisted on limiting a case like this to its facts, this, I think the, the expectation of plaintiffs now is going to be that a court with Kavanaugh on it in place of Kennedy is uh, not going to not going to worry about confining something to his fact and it will be willing to issue a much more broad opinion that might have a, a far greater impact throughout society. My, yeah. my concern is that when, you know, I mean, you're right, just like you said, there's, the, there's the, always the tension built into the First Amendment between the Establishment Clause, which says that government cannot sort of put its finger, you know, on the scale in favor of any religion or any particular religion, versus the Free Exercise Clause, which says government can't stop you under ordinary circumstances from exercising your faith um, and your freedom to worship. So there's always that tension, 
but it's a concern. You know, but it, it's it's a concern um, when the ideological spectrum sort of seems to tilt in favor of results in cases that allow people to discriminate on the basis of religion. Uh, it's claiming that their free exercise requires essentially that they be allowed to discriminate. Well, what if a Muslim didn't want to serve a Jew, or what if a Jew didn't want to serve a Muslim? Or well, it's the same thing. I mean, it's there was a, there was actually Mike Pence was on CNN a couple of days ago uh, talking about Pete Buttigieg, um, and and uh, you know because Mayor Pete was on the radio earlier this week or in a speech saying that he's got a problem with Mike Pence, not Mike Pence's faith, but that Mike Pence. Uh, is willing to discriminate against gay people on the basis of religion. And Mike Pence said, I'm talking about free exercise and my ability to believe and act as I want within my faith. There's the tension right there in colloquial terms summed up by those two men. My concern is that the Supreme Court is going to be more inclined to issue rulings which permit broader discrimination in the name of religion. That doesn't seem like what the Constitution is supposed to allow. It seems to me antithetical to the founding values of our country, and I'm concerned about it. Yeah, yeah, me too. And of course, uh, the you know, up against the states, I, I think a compelling state interest to protect people from discrimination in employment, housing, public accommodations. I mean, that's there's been a long, multi multi decade struggle to try to achieve equality, and having religion be the the Pandora's box to open up a whole new set of arguments is troubling. I mean, I think Alito and Clar- uh, Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh. They'd probably be ready to go there. So, of course, the question comes down to the Chief Justice once again. Chief Justice okay. John Roberts, do you want to uphold, uh, I mean, the, the opinion that really was at center of all this was written by Scalia uh, about not finding a religious exemption. Do you want to uphold stare decisis or uphold, you know, past constitutional law in the interest of keeping stability in the country? Or you want to open the cultural wars on cakes and marriage equality again? It'll be yes, interesting never, to see what happens next week. You never thought that John Roberts would be the centrist swing vote, but here he is. But he is, and I think he will be on the Mueller report and and so much more, so much more. Dude, it is 11.42. I got to let you go because I think you need to leave. You got something else to do. I appreciate it, John. Always always happy to come on with you. And you are one of the smartest guys I know, too. That's why uh, I call you for advice on my client's case. Mutual admiration society between Steve Meister and John Duran. <laughs> <laughs> Be well, bud. You too. Thank you. All right. That was Steve Meister. It's always good to have him on. I like to have the legal beagles. Well, <coughs> gang, I'm still nursing this cold, but I, I want to give you a heads up that uh, next week uh, we're going to have uh, Michael Gottlieb come in on the show. He was supposed to be here today, but he ended up getting called away. And if you've never heard from Michael Gottlieb, Michael Gottlieb was a physician here in Los Angeles that in 1981 noticed that all of a sudden there were strange cases of pneumonia and Kaposi's sarcoma showing up in all of his young male patients who happened to be gay. And he is attributed with being one of the co-founders of the HIV virus, or at least putting all the pieces of the puzzle together to identify a new disease and a new plague that would take hundreds of thousands of lives in the years ahead. And uh, he is a brilliant physician, one of my heroes, straight ally to the LGBT community, but obviously he has been at the forefront of these battles, well, for decades now, uh, fighting the HIV epidemic. And (coughs) I am looking forward to having him on next week to talk about those early years and giving us hope for the future as well. We got to go to commercial break. I want to thank you all for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. All right, kids, welcome back. What a great show it's been. I'm going to wrap the show up by telling a a tale of the days of ACT UP, uh, one of the Uh, criminal cases I got to do. A criminal trial in the late 80s was representing uh, members of the Orange County Visibility League, which was a a chapter of uh, ACT UP down in Orange County that showed up to protest at something called the Heterosexual Symposium. (laughs) And one of the workshops that was being presented was uh, by a member of Congress by the name of William Dannemeyer, who was telling uh, the people there that homosexuals spread spores when they inhaled and exhaled and that on the spores that they were breathing out 
the HIV virus was carried on the back of these spores, exposing the general public to HIV and AIDS. Obviously, that wasn't true. And beyond that, it was noxious political thought and false. And so uh, the ACT UP folks, the Orange County Visibility League, showed up to protest and demonstrate that point of view. And they all got arrested and charged with criminal conspiracy for showing up to protest that congressman's speech. <clears throat> and I had a chance to uh, be their lawyer. We had a trial, and the trial took a week, and my God, it was crazy. Reverend Lou Sheldon from the Traditional Values Coalition and crazy Congressman William Dannemeyer's speech and and all these. Uh, it was really a, a complete nutcase trial with the audience chambers packed with both supporters of ACT UP and Orange County Visibility League <coughs> and supporters of that symposium about homosexuals emitting spores that carried the HIV virus. It's quite a circus. The judge tried to maintain order, and he did a good job. And at the end of the trial, uh, the judge, it was time for him to rule, and uh, he heard all the evidence from both sides and protesters and the crazy thought and everything else. And he concluded the trial by saying, here... In the United States of America, there is the guarantee to free speech, whatever your point of view is, from spores to HIV policy. And part of the protections of free speech and free expression is that even in Orange County, every American has the right to call his congressman an idiot. Case dismissed. It was an awesome day. It was an awesome day. Our side won. First Amendment prevailed and noxious thought was defeated. So, if you're a young activist, get in there, get involved. <coughs> we need you, no matter what your age. And you've heard from some pretty inspirational people today. Glad uh, to be joined today by Eric Bauman, Mary Lucy, and Steve Meister. All incredible people. So, tune in next week. We're going to have Dr. Michael Gottlieb, one of the co-discoverers uh, of the HIV virus, on with us. And I hope you'll tune in. Have a great time in Coachella. If you're out there, don't get sunburned. Use your sunscreen. And uh, look forward to hearing and talking with you all next week on Sidebar with John Duran here on the new Channel Q.